0: morning church hope you are well this morning uh, who here remembers the show what would you do I don't know if this is before the WWJD bracelets I think it might have been after that uh, it was it was a show called what would you do it was kind of the situational hidden camera show do you remember this like people would find themselves you don't remember well let me thank you let me tell you thanks for your honesty Dustin I appreciate that uh, let me tell you a little bit about it uh, years ago they had this show where uh, they would have a hidden camera and then they would put people in situations uh, that were a little sketchy because they wanted to see how certain people would respond to various circumstances or situations. And so, you know, a girl in a park, for instance, would be bullied. And there would be people standing around seeing this take place, and they wanted to know, like, how, like what would you do? How would you respond? There was a woman backing out of a car in a crowded parking lot, and she backed into the car behind her. And people see this take place, and they're wondering, like, what's going to happen? Like, what is she going to do? Is she going to fess up and be open and honest about what took place? Or is she going to hightail it out of town? There was one where they had people read uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. And then (laughs) later on, they came across a couple in need. And so they wanted to see how they would respond. And so, as you can imagine, uh, some people... Pass the test with flying colors and other people not so much. And so, you know, if you pass with flying colors, you probably walk away and think to yourself, I'm, I'm not such a terrible human being. And if, uh, if you failed the test, if you were a schmuck, then, uh, you know, it was cool because it was on video for the world to see. And so there you have it. That's your worst moment advertised for a watching a world. What would you do uh, well uh, at the end of John chapter Eleven, there is a scene that is played out for us that essentially asks and answers this question about a group of people who are watching what has just taken place, and we have an opportunity to see what would people do? How would people respond uh, to a situation that was a bit unfamiliar? Uh, in that day and age, and quite honestly, it is a little unfamiliar in ours. Uh, John chapter 11 records uh, the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Mary and Martha, his sisters, are grieving the loss of their brother. Uh, people have come to gather and to mourn uh, with these two women, and we have an opportunity to see how people respond post resurrection so remember, Jesus has called out the name of Lazarus. He comes out, not in a, a suit and tie, but uh, in his burial garb. And we notice two very different responses in John chapter 11, verses 45 and 46. Scripture records the story for us. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so mourners come to grieve with Mary and Martha. Some who witness the miracle or hear about the miracle believe, and some did not. Recently, I was reading an article on DOI theory. Why? Because apparently I have the attention span of a squirrel chasing a nut in the middle of a busy road. Uh, Companies, I don't know if you know anything about DOI, companies often rely on DOI theory or diffusion of innovation theory. It was a theory developed by a man by the name of E.M. Rogers in 1962 in order to evaluate uh, how long it takes for 50% of the population uh, to adopt a new product. Under this theory, uh innovation adoption populations uh can be seen in really one of five segments. So this guy, E. M. Rogers, uh, came up with five different groups. There are the innovators, they are two and a half percent of the population. These people are eager to be the first to try out a new innovative item. I know some of you, uh some of you would probably fall in that category. Uh, there are the early adopters, 13.5% of the population fall under this category, these consumers represent opinion leaders who buy products after the innovators, right? So 2.5%, 13.5%. The early majority, 34% of the population, these people are seldom leaders, but they do adopt new ideas well before the average person. Then there are the late majority, 34% of the uh, the population. These individuals are skeptical of change, but eventually they hop on board. They're like, fine, fine, fine. Like we give, we'll we'll adopt. You know, we'll we'll use a microwave. Like we'll stop buying VHS tapes. Like we get it, we get it, fine. Uh, And then there are the laggards. The laggards are 16% of the population. These people are bound by tradition and are consequently the hardest to convert. So this is D O I theory, diffusion of innovation theory. Well, I recently came across a new theory. Called RTR theory. Not a lot has been uh, written about it, primarily because I just came up with it last week. Um, This—it's true, Uh, uh, honest to Uh, goodness—it is is responding to resurrection theory, right? Again, I don't—I don't think there's been any extensive studies, but this is just a theory that uh, starts to think about, hey, how do people respond? To a resurrection. I didn't come up with five responses. I came up with two uh, because that's what the text does is it just tells us there are two different ways that people respond. And so I want us to think together about the question this morning, what would you do? Like, what would you do if you had been there and experienced the resurrection? I know full well that you weren't there, but just use your creative imagination and try to imagine what it would be like. And I just want to make four observations uh, from the text. I want us to notice four observations. You can write these down. That's not going to be on the screen. Uh, Notice the faith of many. I want us to notice the faith of many. Uh, Secondly, I want us to see uh, the sinfulness of humanity. I want us to see the sinfulness of humanity. Third, I want us to rest in the sovereignty of God, Rest in the sovereignty of God, and fourth, I want us to trust in the substitutionary death of Jesus so those those four things those four things you ready? great, this is going to be fun uh, you ready yeah, cool we we uh, we first want to think about the faith of many right Lazarus has been raised uh, from the dead, and there's a group of people according to verse forty five uh, that that believe. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And so there are many, many that experienced the resurrection of Lazarus, and apparently said to themselves, um, "This isn't normal." And they trusted in Jesus. Whether they were innovators or early adopters, early or late majority or laggards, really doesn't matter. What matters is that they show up to the party. God fills their hearts with faith and they believe. They trust in the person and the work of Jesus. That, by the way, is why the gospel of John was written. John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, this group of people had life in uh, the name of Jesus. Perhaps you find yourselves here this morning. And that's why you came. You, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you believe that by believing you may have life in his name. And so you've come to gather with the people of God uh, to worship God. Your story is different than their story. Uh, You you weren't there to experience a physical resurrection, uh, but you have experienced a physical resurrection. You have bought into this idea and belief that Jesus is who he claimed to be. To be. You heard the story. You believe the story. You, you say to yourself, I'm, I'm in. I'm trusting in Christ. And if that is you this morning, if God has filled your heart with faith, that is a miracle. It is a spiritual resurrection. Scripture teaches us that there was a time when that was not us when we weren't interested in the things of God, when we didn't have faith, when we were going along our merry way and, and we were just fine going at it alone. Thank you very much. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of you have been saved. So this is, for the believer, this is a spiritual resurrection. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't interested in the things of God. We didn't want anything to do with God. Thank you very much. But God in Christ made us alive. He breathed spiritual life into us. By grace grace, you have been saved, and so there were some that day that experienced the resurrection of Lazarus and looked to Jesus as the Son of God and believed and trusted in him. Many people believed. can I ask you a question this morning um, do you do you when you when you think about people who were there to experience that event, and you read about the faith that was given to them by God, you think to yourself, Man, I, like, count me in. <laughs> like, I, I'm in that group as well. Many people believe, right? The, the text clearly uh, points that out. The text also points out uh, the sinfulness of mankind, the sinfulness of mankind. Now, why would, would I say that? Well, because there's a group of people who respond very differently to the resurrection story. And their response is recorded in verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. All right, so there's a group of people who believe, and there's another group of people who see what takes place and thinks to themselves, "Uh, this isn't a good thing. And so they run to the spiritual leaders, to tell the spiritual leaders what Jesus had just done with the expectation or hope that they would do something about it. Now, to to understand what is taking place here, it is important for us to understand who the spiritual leaders of the day were and why uh, they were running uh, to tell on Jesus. During the day, there were a handful of significant religious groups Two of the groups that the Gospels oftentimes speak about most frequently are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are both a religious sect within Judaism. And it's safe to say uh, that they, more often than not, did not play in the sandbox together. Or they didn't like each other. Uh, They they believed differently from uh, one another. And so typically, uh, they weren't hanging out, uh, rubbing shoulders, and enjoying the weekend together. They were in opposition to one another in their dislike uh, for Jesus. But here, particularly in the Gospels, we find that they have common ground. And the common ground that they have is that they both uh, do not like Jesus. They hate Jesus. Both groups honored Moses and the law, and both groups had a measure of political power. So two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then there's a group called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is 70 members strong, and they are the equivalent of the Supreme Court of Israel. They contain both... Pharisees and Sadducees, but primarily they contained Sadducees. Religiously, the Sadducees were uh, more conservative in one area of doctrine, and that is that they uh, viewed scripture as essentially the only authority, and they would try their very best to literally interpret it. The Pharisees would take scripture and oral tradition in defining what truth uh, really uh, was. Uh, given the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had differing views of Scripture, it's understandable that they would see things a little differently when it came to theology. For instance, the Sadducees rejected a belief in the resurrection of the dead, uh, but the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees denied the afterlife holding that the soul perished at death, uh, but the Pharisees believed in an afterlife and in an appropriate reward and punishment for individuals. The Sadducees rejected the idea of the unseen spiritual world, but the Pharisees taught the existence of angels and demons in the spiritual realm. Socially, the Sadducees were more elitist than the Pharisees. Sadducees tended to be wealthy and to hold more powerful positions. The chief priests and the high priest were Sadducees, and they held the majority of the seats in the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were more representative of the common working people and had the respect of the masses. The Sadducees' place of power was the temple in Jerusalem. The Pharisees controlled the synagogues. The Sadducees were friendlier with Rome and more accommodating to the Roman laws than the Pharisees were. They were more likely to blur the lines of politics and religion. So now, listen, you hear some differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you might be thinking to yourself, James, I don't care. I see it on your faces. Like, you're like, I didn't sign up for this class. Like, you're like, I'm not. I didn't take notes, James, when you laid out the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Like, I'm not going to study this. I'm not going to give you a paper next week, eight to ten pages, single-spaced. I'm not interested. So why would I spend time even talking about it? Well, I spent time talking about it because these people, when they looked at Jesus and saw what was taking place, were irritated and agitated by Jesus and ultimately wanted to kill Jesus. What? Like, why? Like, w- what bothered them so much about the ministry of Jesus that these two religious groups would think to themselves, hey, let's put together a plan to kill him. Why would they do that? Well, our text tells us, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Listen to what happens, verse 47. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come back and take away both our place and our nation." Why uh, do some people uh, choose not to believe in Jesus? If you were to go on Amazon, you would find hundreds, if not thousands, of books on why people uh, are not bought in uh, to Jesus' life and ministry. There are plenty of people uh, who may have been a part of the church at one time, Uh, who leave the church for any number of reasons. And if you have conversations with people and you read some studies, you will find out there are plenty of reasons why people don't believe in Jesus. Some people may say they wrestle with the problem of evil. Some people may say, I don't understand why a loving God would allow uh, the world to go sideways the way that it is. Uh, Other people would look at uh, leadership within a church and go i don 't know if I want to follow that. Other people have been hurt by people within the church like the 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 list is long for why people may claim that they do not believe but but here the I mean the list is pretty short. there is a group of people who look at the life and ministry of Jesus and say to themselves, if people keep following him, Rome is going to take notice. Rome's in charge. Rome is calling the shots. And there's a group of people who have figured out how to do life alongside of Rome. And it may not be a perfect life. It may not always be an ideal life. But their life works for them. And so they're looking at the life of Jesus and they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Why do these people not believe? These people did not believe because they were afraid. And not afraid in the sense of being uncertain or really wanting to believe, but they just were afraid and had to let go. They were afraid because Jesus was a threat to their way of life. Jesus was a threat to their way of life. He threatened to upset the apple cart. The decision makers came together the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin and they said if Jesus keeps performing miracles, everyone will believe in him. And if everyone starts believing in him and following him, Rome will come and wipe us out. They will take away the freedom that we enjoy. Now, maybe we read that and we think to ourselves, well, James, that's not our situation. We're not under Roman rule. You know, we live in the good old U.S. of A. Like We're, we're independent. We have the ability to, to make decisions. No no one is going to come and and tell us uh, what to do. Nobody's going to come and take away our power or our influence or our affluence. We're not Rome. And granted, um, we don't live under Roman rule, and we do experience a measure of freedom. However... Uh, There are times in life when we operate in such a way where we say, um, the life that I know, while not perfect, is pretty decent. And uh, I don't want anyone to come and take away from me what I know. Quite honestly, I like this gig. I've figured out how to, to navigate in Of the world. And I don't want Jesus or anyone else for that matter to come and interrupt my carefully made plans. I don't want Jesus to creep into my calendar. I certainly don't want him to start to fiddle with my finances. I don't think it's any of anyone's business if he were to come and meddle. With my self determined morals, or uh get into my business and so so we uh can hold on tightly uh, to what we have or to what we know, because we're afraid if we come to Jesus with open hands, our life is going to change or at least or at least life as we know it. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, this reveals uh, the reality of the brokenness or the sinfulness of the human heart. We oftentimes are afraid that if we trust in Jesus or if we follow Jesus, that Jesus is going to change too much of what we love. And so we may push him away. Here we see two responses. We see a group of people who believed, many people believed, and other people reject Jesus out of fear. And so uh, they begin to plot. Look at verse 49 of John chapter 11. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, nor that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. I want us to think together about the beauty or the good news of the sovereignty of God. There has been a problem that has been identified by the people. And the problem in the eyes of the people is Jesus. He's gaining in popularity. If it continues, Rome is going to come. They're going to pose a threat to the nation. Rome, it was thought, would snuff out their place in their nation. And they, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, were not going to sit idly by and watch this Uh, Take place. They were going to take matters into their own hands, quite literally. And so Caiaphas comes up with an idea. Uh, Caiaphas is the high priest. Uh, At the time, he is a Sadducee. He is likely a man of wealth and high uh, position. Remember, Sadducees oftentimes uh, would come along and blur the lines between politics uh, and religion. Nothing wrong, by the way, of being involved in politics. Uh, but oftentimes they had a thirst for power more than they had a hunger for change. And that's always a problem. Caiaphas is plotting against Jesus. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas's words are sneaky, they are sinister, and they are evil. Caiaphas essentially calls the people fools and tells them that he has an idea. And here's his idea. We're going to sacrifice one man, Jesus, for the people. We're going to get Jesus out of the picture because it is better for one man to die than for the nation to be wiped out. But as you can imagine, something else is going on here. A Caiaphas has his own meaning in the words that he speaks, but God has his. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not only for the nation or not for the nation only, but also to gather into one one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read scripture, there'll be a word or a phrase that just kind of stands out and just sort of sits there. And I think to myself, well, "What are we going to do with that?" And one of those phrases for me is found in the beginning of verse 51. Did you notice that? Caiaphas has his plot, his plan, his idea he speaks the words, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In verse 51 begins, he did not say this of his own accord. I mean, that should blow our collective minds. Caiaphas said it. And he had one meaning, but he did not say it of his own accord. And God had another meaning. This isn't, by the way, a situation where the God of the universe is in the heavens and thinking to himself, well, you know, when life gives you lemons, I guess you should just make some lemonade. God wasn't surprised by this or caught off guard by it. The the Trinity is not in the heavens watching how the world's events are unfolding, saying to one another, Uh oh, we gotta do something about this. That that is not what is happening. A, a good and sovereign God has a plan and a purpose. He has a plan and a purpose. God is sovereign over the world. Caiaphas was not a puppet. He spoke of the words, and he spoke of the words not of his own accord. God was and is sovereign. Uh, He was sovereign over the life and the death of his son, And God is sovereign over your life as well. And that is actually very good news. It is good news that the God of the universe is not surprised by what takes place in your life. It is good news that the God of the universe isn't caught off guard or surprised by the decisions that you make. It is very good news that an all-loving and altogether good and just and merciful God is not sitting idly by with his fingers crossed, hoping among hope that things get sorted out. We move and we act as people and a God is sovereign over the world. I said, in this story, I wanted to make four observations. I wanted us to see the belief of many. I wanted us to note the sinfulness of humanity. I wanted to rest in the good news of the sovereignty of God. And I wanted us to trust in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. God, in his sovereignty, sent Jesus to live a perfect life and to die a sinner's death, to be buried and to be raised to life. He did this so that his sons and his daughters... May live. And this is very good news. This is good news not only for the Jewish people who trust in Jesus, but it is good news for us Gentiles too. John chapter 10, verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The one time enemy of God is now the prize of God. God calls a people from every tribe and tongue and nation uh, to be the people of Christ. Revelation chapter seven, verses nine and 10 read, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. This is the picture that we are given as the people of God, that God one day will and is drawing people from all tribes and nations and tongues together as his one people. That is powerful and it should, it ought to change the way that we view people uh, who are different than us, who live on the other side of the tracks from us, who have a different zip code, who live in a different country, uh, who may uh, have a different color, uh, who come from a different socioeconomic background than us. God is calling all sorts of of people uh, from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be followers of Jesus and trust in him. And the way that he does that or the means that he uses to draw people to himself is by sending his perfect son to die in our place. The death that we deserved was paid for uh, by Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Isaiah chapter fifty three, verse five But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus was sent to this earth on a rescue mission. Caiaphas and the religious leaders are plotting. But this is also part of God's plan. Jesus was and is our substitute. It is not an accident that this is happening when Passover is at hand. I don't know if you notice kind of the end of John chapter 11, but it says that a Passover is at hand. It is near. It is a week away. If you're not not familiar with uh, the Old Testament or if you don't know about Passover, uh, Passover is a Jewish festival uh, celebrating the exodus from uh, from Egypt and the Israelites' freedom from slavery uh, from the Egyptians. The feast of Passover along with the feast of unleavened bread was the first of the festivals to be commanded by God uh, to Israel in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, the book of Exodus tells us of the origin of Passover. God promised to redeem his people from the bondage of Pharaoh. God sent Moses to the Egyptian king with a command that Pharaoh, let my people go. When Pharaoh refused, God brought 10 plagues on the land of Egypt. The 10th was the worst of the plagues, and it was the death of the firstborn son in Egypt. The night of the first Passover was the night of the 10th plague. On that fateful night, God told the Israelites to sacrifice a spotless lamb and to mark their doorpost with its blood. Then uh, when the Lord passed over through the nation, he would pass over the households that showed uh, the blood. And in a very real way, the blood of the lamb saved the Israelites from death. Fast forward uh, to this event recorded for us. In John chapter 11. And it says in verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews. Was at hand. And many went up. From uh, the country to Jerusalem. Before the Passover. To purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus. And saying to one another. As they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come. To the feast at all. In other words there's a group of people on the cusp of Passover thinking to themselves, talking amongst themselves, hey, what do you think? Uh, do you think Jesus is going to be a no-call, no-show? Like, do you think he is going to come? If you know the story, you know that Jesus uh, did uh, show up. and He, he came uh, to die so that we might live. He came to rescue our rebel hearts. This story was written by God, and so is yours. Jesus came as a substitute, a sacrifice uh, for you and for me, for his sons and for his daughters. I know we weren't there that day some 2,000 years ago uh, when Lazarus was raised. I I know it's impossible uh, for us to think to ourselves, hey, what would we do? in that situation. There there are no hidden cameras this morning uh, noting how we will respond to the good news. Uh, But there still is a gospel call. And so if that were you, what would you do? Or maybe the better question to ask is what will you do? Will you, by the power of God's Spirit, believe and follow the one who has the power to raise the dead? Or will you, afraid of what Jesus may do uh, in your life or to your life, uh, distance yourself uh, from the only one who can give life? Uh, My hope and prayer uh, for you is that we would come to Jesus and that we would experience life. Uh, This is why the gospel was written. Uh, John wrote, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, May you, uh, by the power of the spirit, have life in his name. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for uh, the life that is offered in Christ Uh, We thank you for your good and definitive work on the cross. Uh, We thank you for Jesus who came uh, to live a perfect life and to die a sinner's death, uh, to pay the penalty uh, for the punishment that we rightfully deserved. Uh, We thank you for the life that has given to us uh, by faith in Jesus in his perfect work on the cross. Uh, Lord, thank you for your resurrection power. Uh, that you're still in the business of calling people to yourself, uh, that you still uh, spiritually resurrect people uh, from uh, the grave. We give you thanks for that reminder this morning. God, we love you. We thank you so much that you loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit. Amen.